Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey everyone, on this episode of Six Degrees with Mike McKenna, I'm joined by Jamie Koharski, longtime referee in the AHL, ECHL, NCAA, OHL, you name it. We've shared the ice for over 20 years since we were teammates in Bantams. You won't meet a better guy than Jamie. It's always a pleasure talking with a friend, and some of my favorite on-ice moments occurred with Jamie wearing the stripes. Enjoy. Jamie, where do we even start, man? We go back, what, 23 years, I think, at this point? Uh, it's got to be. I mean, it's 2000. I moved to St. Louis in 94. So that's wow. 25 years ago. I think we uh, I think we played together in Bantam, so that would have been 95, 96, maybe. I think so, yeah. How did that even happen, though? I mean, you're from Hamilton, Ontario, right? Originally, your family is. And you have yeah, some maritime maybe. background, too. But how did the Koharski family end up in St. Louis? Well, as... as most people know what the what the last name dad was a uh, long time referee and we lived in uh, Hamilton and Burlington and back then uh, the opportunity of the league came to dad and asked if he'd be willing to 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 relocate to the US and back then they the league wasn't allowed to tell referees that they had to move they had to have permission had to be mutually agreed upon uh, and also back then if you lived in Canada, you got paid in Canadian dollars. And if you lived in the U.S., you got paid in American. So that was almost uh, – as soon as Dad said yes, you got about a 70% raise. Yeah, he's probably pretty happy about that right off the bat, I'm sure. Yeah. So yeah. They, they gave him the choice of Chicago, St. Louis, or I want to say Dallas. And he had just over the years traveled to St. Louis. He loved the people and made a lot of good French in the St. Louis area. So that's uh, – that's where we moved. What were you thinking when you showed up? I mean, that was a pretty big change. Yeah, it was definitely a huge culture change. I remember the when it really hit me how different it was, was where we had a little bit of a light snowfall one night, and our bus stop, my brother and I, was right in the corner, right outside our house. So oh, that's, that's a bloodbath on the roads in St. Louis. You know that. Well, and we're out there at 7.30 waiting for the bus, and our neighbors came out. We're like, what are you guys doing? We're waiting for the bus. Yeah. Any minute, like no, it snowed last night. School's canceled. We don't have school. <laughs> and you're just waiting for 18 inches for anything gets canceled. I mean, yeah, had that happened. That happened much as a kid. In, in growing up in Ontario, I, I don't remember. I mean, we didn't get uh, we didn't get too too bad of snow, but it was definitely a lot colder than uh, than than what it was in St. Louis for sure. What people don't know about you though is that you played hockey. You were a defenseman. We were teammates. We played on that Pee Wee or Bantam, Bantam team together, I guess. The Bantam team, yeah. And, and that your dad ends up coaching it like a month into the season. <laughs> I don't even know what happened to our coach. So, I mean, when you were young, did you have aspirations like everybody else of playing hockey and making it big time? I did. I did. Just like any Canadian kid growing up, that was that was my dream. And it wasn't until 
well, I was probably, I probably figured it out at a younger age than most. I was probably 13, 14 when I realized, I'm like, I am not good enough to play AAA <laughs> in St. Louis, let alone make it to the NHL. And then obviously the, uh, the, the, the skill level, and the, the ability of the kids kept increasing and increasing every year. And I just kind of stayed, uh, <laughs> kind of stayed a little stagnant. So I, I turned to the dark side. I tried to keep that hidden for a long time. I think that we'd been teammates then, and people always kind of giggled when they found out later on that, yeah, that was my defenseman when we were 13 years old, man. He kept me safe out there. <laughs> and then you, you, whole, kept my plus, you kept my plus minus a little higher than it probably should have been, for sure. <laughs> you know, 23, 24 years later, whatever it is, we were still sharing the ice, which was incredible to me. It was it was really, really cool. And you left. I have to thank you now in person. Uh, I think I sent you a text message. But when I retired from the American League, you uh, you posted a real nice message uh, via social media, and it was uh, very heartfelt. And that's when, kind of when you let the the cat out of the bag and let everyone know. So you know, uh, I haven't told many people this, and not many people know, but uh, you put it a great. I mean, there's no one I shared the ice with longer than you going back to the going back to when you played AAA hockey into the, into juniors and then into pro. So that was. Uh, kind of special it's always fun to be on the ice with you and i don't think people really realize how much of a dynamic players have with referees out there you know there's guys in the locker room that really don't want to talk to the refs they keep themselves disassociated from them but there are plenty of guys though that build up a rapport with you guys you know and And you you spend so much time together on the ice how can you not it's like you're out there with a co-worker really yeah and and i think that's something that's that's unique to to hockey more so than than other sports i don't know if it's just the the, the culture and the way we, we all kind of come up through the, the same ranks. Uh, hockey players weren't unlike other sports, maybe where they're not kind of given everything at the age of 13, 14. If you're an elite player, you still have to grind it out and, and, and be on the bus. And I think there's a, there's a mutual respect going both ways between the officials and the players. Cause we kind of had the same trajectory through the, through the system. Yeah. You got to work your way up. I'm thinking about going back to that team here together though on Bantams. We got into some wild things. I mean, we played a tournament in Houston. You remember <laughs> that? I mean, wh- I who? Do remember that. I didn't even know they had youth hockey in Houston. I thought that we were an outpost in St. Louis. Next thing you know, we're getting on a flight to Houston. One guy's mom, Tony Miller, she's never flown. She's freaking out. You know, we get down there. I don't even know what happened in the tournament, but the only thing I can remember is that they stuck you in the box after the period ended. Yes. And gave you, yes, I don't know what they gave you, like a 10-minute misconduct, and you had to stay in the box while the Zam was going around the ice. <laughs> I remember Dad was not on that trip. He was traveling for, for, for games. And I remember it was Mr. Miller. Greg was uh, behind the bench. And I remember everything that led up to that. There was a player on the other team that was just running around, ended up me and me. And I might have been the fourth or fifth person <laughs> that they had taken a run at. So I just... <laughs> kind of lost. And I remember it was a baseball with eight seconds to go in the game. <laughs> baseball swing, match penalty, try to break the kid's ankle, I think it was. And the referee gave me a minor penalty for slashing. And I was insulted. <laughs> I said, you only give me two for that? And I kind of lost my, my mind a little bit and they gave me a ten. And Okay, so I started skating off the ice and they made me sit in the box after the game and they put ten minutes on the clock. And I'm sitting there like a stool watching the Zamboni go around when everyone's getting ready in the locker room. Well, I remember we got off the ice and we all look around. I mean, where's Coho? 
And, and somebody, <laughs> somebody peeked their head back out of the room. And he's still in the box. And then, you know, everybody starts filtering out of the locker room to take a look. And there you are sitting there, you know, on the, on the stool in the box with your stick vertical, like you're ready to go out for another shift. <laughs> uh, equal mixture of embarrassment and anger. I was so upset because I, I was refereeing too at the time. So right, I knew yeah. the rules. I knew that was not what you're supposed to do, but. How old were you when you started? How old were you when you started officiating? Uh, I was nine. Yeah, I had started in Ontario. It was in the, the blood, the, wasn't it? Yeah, many, many mites. I remember going. My brother played hockey uh, for a year when we lived in Canada, and I just remember going to to see his games and getting excited when I saw the referees come on the ice. Yeah, well, how so can you? I, I mean, was, it's what your dad did. Your uncle still does. Terry Koharski's still a referee in the American Hockey League, living the dream there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they've uh, both those guys have had had incredible careers in, in in their respective leagues. I mean, dad was 32 years on ice in the NHL, and he just uh, he's going on I think 42 or 43 years consecutive being uh, employed by the National Hockey League, and and, and Terry's just a Terry's a legend. He in absolutely the is. As you well know. Oh, what the, what's so yes. funny about Terry is the guys when they first come in the league, they're terrified of him. And I do think he's mellowed a little bit over the years because part of it is that the league has gotten younger with the officials too, right? Guys don't know half the guys that are doing the games. And it used to be that most of the people you were on the ice with, you knew what to expect out of them. So, right, Terry's one of the last guys left that you know what you're getting, and the old guys all love him now. And it used to be yeah. really adversarial. And, and they, anytime they see Coho on the sheet, you're like, it's going to be a good one tonight, boys. Let's go. Just don't say a word to him. Young guys, stay away. Don't talk to him. And we're going to have a good that, night. That's key. That yeah. was key because Terry had been around such a long time that it, he he would take more and he'd be willing to talk more with an older veteran guy. But if it was a, a young kid, his feet haven't even been wet yet in, in pro hockey, started mouthing off, Terry would lose his mind. Oh, he'd tee him and up it was a heartbeat. Separate. Yeah, I remember a great example. The first game I worked with Terry, we went into the four-man system, was in Providence on a Sunday afternoon. So it was... Classic uh, Providence. They take every Sunday afternoon they can. Oh, three, my God. Three national anthems. Nothing but school kids yeah. in there. Yeah, if it's the end of a three and three, you know you're going to be playing in Providence because that's all they play. They play like thirteen or fourteen a year. Yeah. yeah, and I think if you bought a ticket, you get to drop a ceremonial puck drop or something. It just took forever to get yeah, the game started that's right. there. So what did Terry uh, do? So we're I'm down low, plays buzzing along, and out of the corner of my eye, up in the high slot, I see someone just get absolutely drilled, absolutely drilled. I'm like, okay, good. I didn't get a good look at it. I don't need to guess. Terry's back there. That's his area of responsibility. And the guy's laying on the ice. So play keeps going for a second. Team touches the puck. I'm like, okay, here comes the whistle. Let's go, Terry. No whistle. <laughs> so I, I look back. Terry's 150 feet away, leaning over the visiting bench, giving it to some poor rookie. Just absolutely <laughs> giving And play is going on. And we end up, goalie covers the puck, we have a whistle, and everyone comes to me and says, what happened? I go, I have no idea. I said, but if you guys want to go ask Terry, good luck. And he's still <laughs> yelling and screaming, and players just skated away. That was just kind of the respect that that he was able to generate over his career because there's not many guys that can get away with some of his uh, some of his antics. Oh, man, my absolute favorite one was when he told Brad Marchand to take a hike. 
This was in <laughs> Providence. It was the exact same thing. It was in Providence. And it was Marshawn's rookie year, and he had started the year in Providence, and he went up for like two games, right? And he comes back to Providence. It's the second period, and I clearly remember because I had to skate from the far crease to the bench, right? And Coho's on my right. Marshawn's in the slot. Marshawn starts lipping off to Coho. And again, it's his rookie year. Terry loses it. And he just <laughs> immediately goes into his What? You think you get two games in the fucking show? You think you're fucking hot shit? Fuck you. Right to the box. <laughs> Ten minutes. And, and, and the, the best yeah. part, Marshawn never played another game in the American Hockey League after that. He got called up the next day and never played in the American League again. And Coho just completely big dogged them. <laughs> they're from the same hometown, too. They're both Nova Scotia boys. And I That's think right. Terry played with Mart with Brad's dad and Junior or something growing up. So oh, or, or played man. against them. So I think the way Terry tells the story every chance he gets is he tells him that he goes, I, I used to kick the shit out of your father back in the day. You're not even close to being as tough as he is. That was literally the funniest moment on the ice for me in my whole career. And it's midway through the second period, I'm skating off to the, <laughs> to, the to the bench for a TV timeout. And but you know, all that being said, it's it, I don't want to paint the picture of Terry just going out there and do whatever he wants. Terry no. was probably the best referee. Not, not to work in the NHL. I mean, he was a, he was, and he couldn't. If he wasn't a good referee, he couldn't get away with saying some of the stuff to to players and coaches, and and still have that respect. Oh yeah, and uh, I don't want people so, to think he's just a wild card doing whatever. Like Coho is legitimately Terry is one of the most respected people I've ever come across in the game. Really is, and I do think that that's something that's missing in refereeing, though. That. When guys get on the ice and he's out there, they respect him. And you're you're in the locker room telling your players, if you respect this person, he'll treat you like gold out there. Half the guys we get in the league now, you don't even know who they are. How are you going to react no. to them? You don't know what to do. No, right? and the the culture and, and everything has kind of kind of changed a little bit. Uh, going to the four man system, uh, however many years ago it was, kind of took the the personality mm-hmm. of the officials out of the game. You can't. You can't go out and referee a game the way you would want to because you still have a partner with you that's going to be doing what he does, and you can't control that. So I miss the, I miss the days of being out there by, your, by yourself and, and knowing when to let the boys go a little bit and, and recognizing when to rein them back in. That was, uh, that was kind of the art and the, the fun of, of refereeing. It reminds me of Jeff Smith, who used to do American League games, and Smitty was well known for swallowing the whistle, and he'd be skating down the ice, quite literally waving off penalties, just just play, just keep going. And that was always yeah. a joke, is that Smitty had a flight five minutes after the game, and he's got to get out of there. But that's what you yeah. like, you knew that that when you drew him for the game, that's what you were going to get. You know, and, and it was it the was same accepted. thing. Yeah, it was accepted. I mean, this was just the personality, or you know, if somebody else was working the game, oh, he calls everything, but. You knew it going into it. Like, do you think the two-man system has, you know, take obviously it's taken the personality out, but has it made it more difficult for guys to call the game? Uh, no, honestly, I, I think it's easier to call the game now. I think the 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 two having two referees on the ice has, has made the game better. Uh, I think the players can just go out there and and, and play and and not worry about I don't know sh- shit going on behind the behind the whistle it's going to get missed and uh but on the flip side of it it's made it harder to develop relationships with with players and coaches um 
but overall, I think it's it's good for the game. And the game's so fast. I don't care how great a shape or how good a skater you are as a referee. There's no way you're going to be able to see everything by yourself. I mean, we watched in the the, the playoffs this year in the National Hockey League how tough it is to catch everything when there's two of you on the ice. So I I, I don't think we'd ever go back to the days of having only one. Don't you think it's made it harder, too, in terms of at least public opinion? Because replay shows everything a thousand times at a minuscule level slowed down to the nth degree that you guys are seeing it in real time. And you can't, from even from the replay, tell what you guys see, whether it's out of the corner of your eye or in front of you. That's impossible to make as a judgment just looking from replay. But fans sure think they know no matter what, right? How oh, did this 100%. guy miss it? I mean, there's got to be moments during games, though, where you – you just think back and go, I, I don't know what I saw. I can't make that call. You know, yeah. is that, does and, that happen often in games? Uh, yeah, quite quite a bit. And, and it took me a long time in my career uh, to, to recognize the fact that you get yourself into more trouble when you guess mm-hmm. at a play. You guess, you call what you think you saw. And a lot of the times our gut was 90% of the time, we're probably right. If we guess and we make a call, we're probably right just with our hockey sense and our, and our gut instinct. But that 10% of the time that you're wrong does more of an insert, does more of a disservice to the game than it would be if you just kind of let it go. If you don't call it, you get in more trouble by calling bad penalties than you do by, by letting them sort it out themselves sometimes. So what's the best way to handle it when you blow a call? Cause I'm sure it's happened to everybody. How do you deal with it? Do you go to the coaches? Do you just go to your, your, your partners on the ice, your linesman, your referee, what's the best course of action for it? I, you have to own up to it. You have to own up. You try and bullshit you guys or, or coaches and try and talk your way out of uh, why you talk your way out of why you why you didn't call something or why you called a bad penalty. I mean, video doesn't lie, like you said. So you you lose a little bit of credibility, I think, if you try and justify a a bad call or or a, a missed call. So you. And I think you gain a little bit of respect if you go to a coach who's losing his mind or a player and say, listen, I don't, I go, I have a feeling you might be right. I said, it's, I, I go, I have a feeling you might be right. Let's leave it at that. And, and more often than not, the response is you owe us. Well, you owe us. And I said, well, I don't owe you a power play. I owe you a better effort. Yeah. That's what I owe you. I don't owe you. There's no makeup calls. There's no, I'm not going to let you guys get away with something now because I let them get away with something, but I owe you a better effort. Yeah. And I think that, uh, that gets a lot of respect. You can't do it. If you're doing it four or five, six times a game, then you probably don't belong to be, you probably don't deserve to be at that level anymore as an official, but it's, uh, you have to own up man up to it. Well, and it could just start going back and forth and end up in this vicious cycle. If you're just trying to call penalties to even things out, I'm sure it can get out of hand in a big hurry like that. Yeah. And then you're, 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 you're lost. You're playing catch up the rest of the rest of the night. And, and it's not a good, and we've all had it and we've all had that sinking feeling in their gut. When you get in the locker room afterwards, your head hanging low saying you kind of kick the dog in that game. That's not a good feeling that, that you want. You guys must have the same highs and lows after games though, that players do. And I don't think fans even realize that. I think that oh, there's a large contingent of them that just think you guys are out there joy riding around the ice ho ho we're having fun we're refereeing this thing you guys oh, yeah, live, we're there you guys, to... you guys live and die by this too right it's just like a big game for us i'm sure that if you if you guys call a great game you're sitting in the room cracking bud lights happy as can be right and if it goes yeah. poorly you walk, probably walk out of the building pretty upset yourself yeah yeah you absolutely do and it's uh 
I mean, fans fans think we're out there just to, to prevent their team from winning. Oh, That's you're, what they're biased. Every every referee is yeah. biased. It is impossibly yeah. impartial. Yeah, they yeah. they see what so, they want to see, right? <laughs> it's uh, but no, it's it's. There's nothing better than walking off walking off the ice and being able to look yourself in the mirror, saying that you 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 did a really good job, and it's. For players, for you, it might be making a big save or, or a shutout or, or whatever it is, or a big win. For for us, it's making that big call at the right time, that that must get call, that or being at the net and seeing that the puck went in by an inch, or or stepping up and, and calling a, a big a, the penalty shot late in the tie game that has to be called, where a lot of guys might uh, kind of be scared of that situation and only call with a trip or a hook. It's uh, no, it can be uh, very rewarding, but it's also a very lonely job because you're celebrating with two or three guys in the locker room after, and then you go your separate ways and you're by yourself at the hotel. Yeah, or you're it, in the car by yourself. I think that's what my and people, some people that know me know this too about my grandfather that he he would officiate until he was 76 years old, right before he died. But I know what he loved about it was just coming in the locker room and seeing his friends working it with the guys. So. Maybe dive into a little bit what that camaraderie is like. What's it like in the officials' room for you guys before, after, during games? Well, we're all uh, we're all pretty much cut from the same cloth. You kind of got to have a, a, a certain personality and, and demeanor about you if you want to even be a part of an yeah. Your part dad, of the officiating your world. dad once said that you're all just a frustrated hockey players. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> we're all just kind of. We're all, we're all pretty happy to still be uh, a, a part of the game, uh, uh, as little a small part of it as it is that we are, but we're uh, we're still a part of it and fortunate to be out there in that uh, in that environment. I'm trying to think back in your your arc to making it to where you are. You know, still doing college games, American League recently, but I don't think people really understand the route that you have to take to get to that level. And I know some of that's changed. You know, they're plucking guys right out of pro hockey to do refereeing linesman jobs now, and that seems to be what, yeah. the trend of what they're going. But especially for your era, you really had to grind it out. I mean, you took a similar path that I did. And, yeah, played, and, that's, you, and it, you worked junior, you worked college. You know, explain to people everything you had to do to even get to the American League. Yeah. Um, well, I started, uh, like I said earlier, started refereeing little, little tiny kids in, in Canada when I was nine. But my officiating career never really took off till I moved to St. Louis. As a matter of fact, the first game I worked in St. Louis was with Grandpa Bill. It was the first the one? old uh, – are the first serious? one I worked at the yep oh, at the man. outdoor arena. Amazing. What was the uh, what was the outdoor rink? There were not, oh there was no there was no lines painted on the ice. <laughs> it could have been I'm Clayton and could have been Steinberg. Could have been. There was Kurt, Clayton. Clayton, that's right. There yeah, was Clayton. Sure. So that was my introduction to St. Louis hockey. <laughs> oh man, and we were pretty far along at that point too. You talk about '94. I mean, we probably had 20 sheets in town. You you picked the one rink, and you got the assignment of the one <laughs> rink that wasn't up to modern standards of all places. <laughs> but no, it was. Uh, so I started working, and in, in, at 14, you don't really work your 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 age group. So I was doing eight to 12, eight to 13 year old games, and. Uh, working with all the, the, the local guys there. And, and then kind of, as I got older, kind of getting moved up and getting some triple A games and, uh, going and this all is within, over. This is within USA hockey at that point, right? This is all with USA hockey and right. through my HOA, Missouri ice hockey officials association, uh, who do a tremendous job yeah. developing, uh, young officials. Um, and then 
from there, from, from working AAA games, I got invited to go to the North American Hockey League uh, training camp for officials when I was 17. Uh, went there, I must have had a good outing at training camp and started uh, working as a linesman. In the and North that American. league, by the way, at that time was mostly 19, 20, 21-year-olds. So you're 17 yeah, years was, old, and you were you were pretty young, I think, right, compared to most people working those games? Oh, by at least three, four, five years. I mean, I was, a, I, was, I was the youngest person on staff for sure, and I'd work mostly in St. Louis, Springfield, Danville, that kind of way, the, the three cities I could drive to without having to miss too much school. And that league and, was an absolute circus back then. I played in it. I know what it was like. I can't imagine it, being a linesman with those mutants on the ice. It, I mean, guys, I mean, I mean Cam Jansen played there. Uh, uh, I think George, I'm just thinking of St. Louis guys, Danny McNabb, George Cantrell. Uh, I remember the guy, uh, John Pyrick, that played for the Sting. Oh, Pyro, rest in peace. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, but, no, that was uh, – you kind of saw a lot of uh, – a lot of different situations there at a young age as a linesman. I mean, going into Springfield on a Friday night, Springfield, Illinois, and it'd be filled to the rafters with the beer cups lined all around the <laughs> the boards and the glass and just the, uh, no offense to anyone, but the creatures that would be there cheering on the team. It was, uh, it was eye-opening. Man, that, I look back on it, and that was trial by fire coming into that environment. And I, I was actually fortunate to play in Springfield because, like you said, we had fans, and they actually expected something out of us. There were some teams in the league. I mean, I remember Cleveland, there might be 20 people there, you know, and I don't know whether the team was just a tax write-off or what it was for the owner, but in Springfield, and I think the we 20 actually— people there. The 20 people there, I think, were just kind of killing time before their practice over on the other sheet at the arena. <laughs> yeah, you know, their kid had a triple-A game afterwards or something, yeah. but— you know, Springfield, they expected stuff out of us. And it was a fun environment, but it was also a little bit of pressure. And I just think back, though. I mean, the first game, I think we were on the ice together. You got bled all over. And your, your jersey was <laughs> – your, your sweater was just beat red. And I remember you come out for the second or third, and it was clean. I was like, what did, what did you do? Yeah, ice water. Got it out. <laughs> so yeah, you, that's all it is. Yeah. That's all it is. It was – I remember uh, probably the – I've broken my nose uh, three times in my career. Once was in uh, the East Coast League down in Beaumont. In Not Texas. playing. You got your nose broken officiating here. Let's... Officiating. Right. Yes. Before we even wore the, 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 half, the half visors, yeah. uh, I was skating up the ice, following play on the bench side and, uh, in front of the Texas bench. And John Snowden, who's now uh, the head, head coach, coach of the Crowler. Uh, yeah, out in, out in, the, out in the rock. Just they won just the, won, uh, yeah, the, just won the Kelly Cup in the ECHL, yeah. So he uh, he was coming on the ice for a line change, and I'm not paying any attention. I, I learned a lesson here real quick. where you Don't skate that close to the boards because I ran right into his knee coming. That's how close I was to the bench. And I ran right <laughs> into his knee, and my face just exploded about maybe six minutes into the second period. So went out. Doctor went and cleaned me up. Stuck the tampons up my nose. Say the old nose tampons. Yeah. <laughs> Classic yeah. hockey play. <laughs> and go back out and finish. Went back out. I might have missed five minutes of action. Went out and finished the game and then had to get in the car and drive six and a half hours back to my apartment uh, by oh, myself. Yeah, because that was an outpost too. What's the protocol when you guys get injured on the ice? Because you don't have team trainers. You know, you're, you're largely in the building by yourselves. Do the Does the guy from the home team, the away team, who takes care of you? And then even if it's simple things like, you know, on ice, are you covered with insurance? If you get hurt on the ice, 
Does the league take care of you? How does that work? Yeah, the leagues, uh, if you get hurt on the ice, the leagues do a good job with because uh, we're all, unless you're under contract as a referee to the NHL, we're all independent contractors. So it kind of fall under the, the, the workman's comp laws in, in whatever state that you were you were working in. But uh, I never had any issues with any leagues not kind of not stepping up and, and taking care of me when uh, when need be. And the home teams are always great. Whether you need something in game that happens, you need to get checked out or or get worked on before the the, the team docs and trainers are always uh, for the most part very very professional with uh, with us. And even the equipment guys, if we need skate sharpenings or, or, or laces or something sewn on our pants, the uh, the equipment guys, as long as you don't go to them 40 minutes before the game starts, if you get there early, they'll they'll take care of you. When you were grinding in the coast, where were you based out of? And do you have any travel stories that stick out that were just a nightmare when you were doing it? I, I did uh, full-time. I did three seasons in the East Coast League. So my first year was, oh, three when was the lockout? Was it 04, 05? 04, 05, because I came out the year after. My first year yeah, pro so. was 05, 06. And I think okay. by then you were in the American League as well, so that would make sense yeah. time-wise. So I, that's why I never I never had Jets. The only league I've worked that I hadn't worked here, that I haven't worked on the ice with you. Yeah. Um, so it would have been 03, 04. I was living in Biloxi, Mississippi. They had a – yeah, I went to go work pro hockey, and I'm living in Mississippi. That's with, fine. Uh, no, that's a good trade-off. <laughs> it was fun. It was yeah. fun. I mean, most of my games were in Biloxi, Pensacola, uh, Lafayette, Louisiana. So I was in the sun, all uh, sun in the water, all all season long. So that was kind of a that was kind of a fun year. And then from there, after the next year, I moved to Atlanta with a couple guys in the league apartment. The league pays for the apartment. It cuts back on on travel expenses and hotels. So I lived in Gwinnett for a year. And then moved to lovely Reading, Pennsylvania, the following year, where I did uh, half American League and, and, and half Coast League. Travel nightmare stories. Uh, I was on the road. It was over New Year's. I had left on. I had to leave Christmas night to get on the road down to Charlotte, and I did the whole Carolinas, Georgia, Mississippi swing, and it was a two-week trip. And I remember my last game of the trip was in Charlotte. And you're and driving I, the whole thing, right? You're in your car the whole time. I'm in my pon. I'm in my 2001 Pontiac Grand Prix with oh. 300,000 miles on it, <laughs> driving all over the country by myself. But I remember I was we we're in Charlotte, and I always liked staying in Charlotte because back then in the coastal we had to stay at the Red Roof Inn. We had to stay at Red Roof Inn. But the one in Charlotte actually had hallways and an elevator, so you thought you were at a real hotel. That's rare so for it was a roof, fun. man. Yeah, it's usually outdoors. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just drive to your room in Charlotte. So we're, after the game, I was so wiped. It had been a long, it was 10 games and 14 nights or whatever it was. And I'm at the bar with the guys having a couple of drinks, and my phone rings, and it was our boss. I answered it. And he goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm having my second beer at the bar. He goes, well, you got to go work. Uh, it's Saturday night. He goes, you got to work in Pensacola tomorrow. I said, okay, what time is, what time is my flight in the morning? And he goes, no, 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 you're driving. And that was, I might be a little off, but it's got to be at least a seven, eight-hour drive. And it's midnight now. The game's at 2 o'clock central time the next oh. day. <laughs> 
So I had to go at midnight. I had to leave the bar. Thank gosh, I only had a beer and a half. I uh, say, so, yeah, I mean, you weren't seven deep at that point, which yeah. is good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so I had to go to the hotel, pack up all my stuff. I never even emptied my bag from the game that night. So my stuff was just soaked. I had to drive, drove the apartment in Atlanta, slept for two and a half hours, got up, worked the game, and then had to drive all the way back to Reading, Pennsylvania the next two days. So it was, uh, that was probably the worst, the worst travel I had, which is not bad. Uh, were you hanging the sweater out the window trying to get it dry? You know, roll the <laughs> window up so that it's hanging out halfway? <laughs> All I did is I went right in the apartment. I just threw – I didn't even wash it. I just threw everything in the dryer. Would you guys have to get – yeah, would you have to get creative on the road though when it came to that, drying your gear out? Because you, you're handling it most of the time. It's not like you'd load in at midnight and let it dry in the locker room most of the time, I'd imagine. You've just got it in your car in your hotel room, right? Yeah, it's, it gets gross, especially when you're rooming with, with, with other officials on, their, on the road and you get – two sets of equipment being aired out and the, the, the skates are being hung over the dryer or the uh, heater in the room. And uh, it's uh, it's a pr- pretty rank situation most of the time. Who were some of the referees and linesmen that you really enjoyed working with over the years? All of them. I always got a, I always had a, 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 always loved working with Terry the few times we got to, to work together just because of the, uh, not only because he was my uncle, but just seeing that, the, the respect that he had on the ice from the players and officials. And, and that was always something I strive to, to kind of mimic and, and get to my, in my career. Uh, but I mean, I made my best friends, David Banfield, Jason mm-hmm. Finley, uh, all the guys. Cause we, we, it's hyperbole, but we, we, we go to war with those guys on a nightly basis. And they're, they're our only friends in the building amidst, thousands of screaming people that that hate us so it's you, you 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 develop such a close bond with these guys and even though we don't see each other quite as often as as we would like when you when you run into each other over the years you just pick up right back to normal so it's uh, the shared experience that not many other people get to get to go through that we've gone through together is very special yeah band of brothers in some ways right how yeah, do you exactly. how do you deal with the crazy fans, man. Because like you said, you're public enemy number one in every building. There's some that you'd skate on the ice, they immediately start booing you. Like they'll announce it's Jamie Koharski. Boo. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, I mean, how do you handle that, honestly? You know it's coming. You know it's coming. Do you, and, do you wear the black hat and kind of feed off it, though? Uh, it'll get you going. Like, yeah. it'll, I, I remember, there's a guy in, there's a guy in Hershey. Don't you want to just skate out and wave? You know, like the oh, guy in Slapshot who gives the guy at the finger at the, you know, as he's skating on the ice? That's every referee's dream is the last game to skate off the ice like that. With two just metal like fingers that. in the air. Yeah, <laughs> double bird. Yeah. But, I mean, that's a little tongue-in-cheek, but it's... Sure. Growing up at a young age, Dad always instilled in me that when they're, when players or coaches or parents at that time are, are yelling at you, they're not yelling at you they're yelling at the black and white jersey that you have on. They don't, and that, it sounds corny, but dad always says it at our camps. He goes, if they, if they knew who you were, they'd like you. You're a good guy. You're a passionate guy. You love the sport. Uh, you're a nice young kid, but you put that black and white jersey on and, and people just start yelling at that. And when you got in, when I got into junior and pro hockey, it all just becomes white noise. I mean, those, those fans paid good money to, to, to get their ticket and go and it's professional hockey. So we're, 
they can yell and they can yell and say whatever they want. We don't hear them. I mean, you, you hear them, but you don't. You just it's expected. There's a guy in Hershey that after it's re, you line up for the national anthem, it's dead quiet in the building, and right before the singer starts to sing, this fan up in the nosebleeds, you know, Koharski, you suck. Have another go. <laughs> And I don't know if he did it to every referee, but he definitely did it to me, Terry, and David Banfield. And it was just <laughs> it, it got to the point where I didn't hear him one night. He didn't yell, and I had someone go check to make sure he was okay. Right, you're worried like, if the guy's all right. You expect yeah, it at that point. Yeah. So it was, but it it's all it's all good. It's all fun. It's I never had any super crazy uh, experiences with 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 fans even throwing shit or. or Taking it, taking it above just the, the, the verbal abuse, which is, uh, which is fine. If so you've you, never had the Mr. Larson moment from Happy Gilmore where you can count <laughs> on me waiting for you in the parking lot. That never well, happened to you? And I, 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 there, there's been those threats, but right. no one's ever followed through on it. A bunch of so, cowards, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I'd, I'd be walking out in the parking lot like Carrie Fraser's story with my skates over my hands. <laughs> Telling them to bring it on. <laughs> what, there, I mean, you've worked in a lot of buildings, and you've worked in some beautiful ones and some absolute dumps. I'm trying to think going back with ECHL, NAHL, American League, college. What are some of the better oh, buildings you've worked in, and some of the worst buildings that you've worked in? Because it's been a wide swath. I, I I'm an old school guy. I always like the, the the small barns. The, I the like old the Caligo. shitty ones too. Yeah, me yeah. too. I like it's playing just, in like, bingo no, in Syracuse and those old places. Bingo Syracuse are probably my two favorite buildings in the American League. I mean, they the uh, the fans there were, were just right on top of you. They hated me, <laughs> hated me, which is kind of a badge of honor sometimes. For uh, it just shows if a, if a fan base in a minor league city hates you as a referee, it's because you've been around long enough. <laughs> that yeah. something has happened in that building and they don't forget. Right. But I mean, in the Coast League, I love Toledo, the old Toledo sports arena there at the walk. We had to through walk them. through this. We had to walk through the crowd to get to the ice. Yeah. The, gla- the, the glass was like two feet high. They're taking swipes at you over the glass and warmups. I had a game. I had a game there where the, where the home team was fighting a, fa- a home fan, a season ticket holder <laughs> behind over the, the glass. Yeah. They didn't even have glass behind the bench. They were just sitting in the crowd there. Yeah, and I'm looking, and I'm I was young. I was like, "What do I do? I give anyone a penalty? Like it's just it's it's, it's like That's a two literally teammates. like slap shot when the refs look at yeah. each other and they go, "Should we get involved?" I'm trying to think of what part of the movie that is, but. That's when they're up in the stands fighting everybody. Should we get involved? That's when the Hansons went into the crowd. Yes. Yeah. Because Coach Reggie That's Dunlop true. said that somebody threw a monkey wrench and they were defending the dignity of Charleston and <laughs> the visiting team just watched it happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're not getting involved. No need to get no need to no need to get ourselves involved in that. I'm sorry about themselves. Yeah. But no, I mean, Toledo, the old Windsor Arena in the OHL was awesome. Uh I just liked it. I just liked where the the, the the fans just being so into it and there might only be 2,500 people in the building, but it sounds like 20,000 because of just how low the roof is and how close they are to you. So that was, those were always fun. For some reason, I, I, I never liked working in Albany. At the rink, in, at the arena in Albany, I just, for some, there was just, I don't know what it was, and you played there, you spent a lot of time there. I just, something was depressing. It was really that. dark in that building. Yeah. Maybe that's, maybe that was the the difference, but it's funny how, 
I didn't like that one, but I loved going to the War Memorial in, in Syracuse. Yeah, well, Albany was, I don't know, Albany was okay when Charlotte was there as the affiliate when I was playing in the American League. They at least got some fans. And then I came in the first year, it went back to Jersey and our our fans just plummeted, you know, it'd be friends and family yeah. in the building. And, you know, it's not to say people weren't passionate and there weren't real hockey fans there. There just weren't many. And I don't know why it didn't work, but you always knew something was going to go wrong in that building too. I remember the first game we had coming back, devils are back. And sure enough, somebody smashes the glass out right by the benches. And I go, oh, boys, watch this. This is going to be a while. And the rookies are going, what are you talking about? I go, oh, you just watch. I've seen this before, guys. So the rink, the rink crew comes out, you know, and the, the rink crew's just like completely out to lunch. They bring a piece of glass out on the ice that they're going to replace. It's too wide. They bring the wrong piece out. So we're already 10 minutes delayed. They go back behind and I go, oh, yeah, guys, I know what's coming. Keep your ears open. What are you talking about? Oh, just keep your ears open. Two minutes later, they're firing up the bandsaw. <laughs> they got the table saw going back there. They're cutting a piece of plexiglass up. They wheel it out. It still has like the brown paper wrapper on the backside of it. They put it in next to the penalty bench where it had broken. 25-minute delay. They had to cut a piece of glass. And Meanwhile, the coaches are yelling at the referees because it's our fault. Yeah, get it's your guys together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have you had that a bunch? I mean, what's it like when a coach comes up to you and blames you for something that's completely out of your control? It's – you just kind of look at him, and I would repeat what he's complaining about to me. I would repeat it back to him so maybe he hears it in a different way <laughs> until he realizes how fucking ridiculous he sounds. <laughs> um, but it's – when you get in the emotion and everything, you just got to – if you're frustrated and vent, you got to – let it loose on somebody and coaches probably think, well, players are tired of hearing me yell at them. So I'm going to yell at the referees now because I got to get this out. So it's, it's just nature of the beast. I mean, I know we've talked about not doing even up calls, makeup calls, those things, but tell me in the back of your head when a team's been motherfucking you for the whole game, just absolutely riding you. Is it not yep. in the back of your head that in some way, in some form, I really don't want these guys to win the game. And it may not affect what's coming through on the ice, but I'm sure in some way, though, that feeling is there. It's got to play into it somehow, sometime. There, yeah, there's pretty much three ways that, three ways it's going to go. It's, you're just going to ignore it, block it out of your mind, and, and just react when something happens. The other way is it's going to work. The coach has got to you, and you're going to call a weak one uh, just to maybe hopefully shut him up or shut the players up. Uh, but the third way is what I always preferred to do was I wasn't going to not call something or call something based on, uh, based on the coach yelling, but I wasn't going to call a weak one. I was going to work really, really hard not to call a soft penalty to put that team on the power play just to appease them. Cause if you do that, then you lose credibility with the other team. And they think, well, you only called that because he's yelling at you. So maybe we're going to start yelling and screaming at you. Right. Uh, I remember later in my later in my career when I can get away with something like this. Uh, there's a, 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 a coach in the American League. I don't want to. Ah, no, I will. I'll save his name. I'll save his name. Mike Havlin. Great guy <laughs> off the ice. Yeah. I played for I don't him know in Norfolk. Play. Yeah, I played yes. for him in Norfolk briefly. Yep. He was, he was always a good guy off the ice. We always got along off the ice. But on the ice, he was just we'll say emotional would be a good way to put it. 
and and, and he would just all all game long yell and scream and I I tried everything I'd given him bench minors I'd gone over and talked to him I've thrown him out of games nothing worked you nothing don't see worked. that happen next, very I, often anymore it's pretty rare no, a guy gets tossed no exactly but I just your your wits in you got to try and figure out something to get this guy to quit yelling so in Binghamton he was coaching uh, he was coaching Hershey at the time and he, <laughs> Hershey player gets hooked in front of the bench. Just a little bit. Wasn't a penalty, but he goes down pretty easy. Took a dive. And Javi right away is on the bench, arms up, yelling and screaming. And there's a nothing play. So then something else happens. He starts yelling and screaming. I'm like, you know what? Maybe I'm going to try this to shut him up. So the next four or five shifts, Binghamton kind of clued in. They're like, Coe's not calling. We're not. Hershey's not getting a power play if he's yelling and screaming. Guys are getting crushed. Like there's probably six or seven penalties that I let go that are definite, at least two minute penalties. And every time something would happen, he'd yell. I'd look up at him, kind of shrug my shoulders. And the next whistle, he he goes, "Are you gonna fucking call anything?" I said, "No, I'm not." I said, "You keep yelling like that." I said, "I'm gonna let them do what they want till you have a heart attack, and maybe that's maybe finally we'll get some peace and quiet around here." And he was furious. You could see the players burying their face on the bench, chuckling. They were laughing because they knew I was at my wits' end, and they were probably at their wits' end listening to him. Yeah. Uh, But that was – I could kind of get away with it at that point in my career. It's not something I'd recommend most people doing. There's some characters in your game, in your side of things, though, and I I look at what Wes McCauley's done in the NHL, and people adore him now because – Look what he does on the penalty calls, the no-goal calls, the offside calls. He hams it up a little bit. He plays it up. He's the only guy I can think of that's willing to do it, though. And then I also think about how after games, the referees never have to face the media. And I'm curious your thoughts on that because, to me, I, I'd kind of like to see them do it so they could give it back to people and at least explain things rather than having to go through an intermediary. Do you think that would be a good or bad thing, though? Because just from the outside looking in, I think that would be good. And... I'd like to hear your thoughts, though, from your perspective, having been in the trenches and knowing what that feeling's like. I think, I think in general, in theory, it's a great idea. I think it, in theory it would work well for the game, but that's assuming that uh, like a guy like Wes McCauley would have no problem facing the scrutiny of the media or taking, taking questions in a, in a press conference where there's some other guys who might not be as, as comfortable and would get a little tongue-tied talking and it might be a, end up doing a disservice Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, to the game. They won't be able to get their point across as, as clearly as others. So uh, I think it's, I, I think overall it'd be good. Maybe if it's like you said, an intermediary that, that goes in and gets a statement or a PR person goes in and gets a statement from the official and then come back out and relay that to the media. Uh, I think that might work. Uh, that would work better. And I think it would just the, the show the transparency and the accountability that maybe these, uh, these guys have. So I think they do. I'm not a big basketball fan, but I think they do it in the NBA where they, they come out and the, the crew chief will face a pool reporter. Uh, I know they do it in Major League Baseball. So I think it's, I think overall it would serve the game well and it would show the, show the human side of the officials a little bit more to the fans. Man, do you, when Wes McCauley did that initial five minutes for fighting, 
tell me that you guys in the referee's room didn't all look at each other and go, he did it. Somebody finally did it. <laughs> he said he was going to do it and he did it. Yeah. Uh, was it like it's, that? It's our, our jaws all dropped. Like we can't believe he actually did it. That's awesome. That's <laughs> awesome. And you know what? It's not Wes being wanting to make it about him or it's not Wes being the show. That's just Wes. That's yeah. his personality. It was authentic. Yeah. Game. He, he got it honestly. His father was the same way. His dad was, was, was my dad's mentor when my dad first broke into the league. Uh, but no, that's just, that's just Wes. And I don't think there's, there's other guys that could get away with it uh, without, without it seem, seeming forced. But that's just, West didn't have like when he goes and does the the the, the no goal calls with the suspense. That's not him planning that out at the beginning of the game. That's just him being so caught up in the moment and being being connected. And it was just it's. I think it's awesome. Well, it resonated with people. I think that's the best part of it, and it humanizes what you guys do. And that's kind of what I mean with the media. That if a guy would at least have a chance to explain that, you know, it may look like it on the video, but I didn't see that, and I'm sorry I didn't see it, but it happens, and it's a fast game. You know, yeah. just even a statement from the person, I just feel would help because I, I can't stand seeing fans nonstop blame referees for losses. It's the biggest chicken shit cop out move from people. It's a sore loser type of thing to do because I can think of maybe, I don't know, five. I could probably count on my one hand how many times I've seen a ref truly blow a game for a team. You know, right. it just doesn't happen. But that's the perception is that all oh, the referees gave it to him. Somebody's biased. I mean, how do you let me let me even... clear the air there with the with the bias statement? Please do so. Yeah, we hate you guys equally. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a two way street. <laughs> we, we 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 don't care. Literally, we do not care about the outcome of the game. With a, to a man, to a referee. In any sport, I'd venture to say that we literally do not care because we, despite what fans may think, we are held accountable. Uh, but it's just there's too much going on in the game, in a hockey game, that we have to worry about that we're not worried about the outcome. Like we just we, we truly, truly aren't. But sorry, it's kind of a kind of a tangent I went on, and I commend you for. For, for sticking up for the officials. I've seen it over the years so many times, the uh, social media and statements you've made in the, in the, with the media. Well, that's pretty easy when your grandpa did it his whole life. You know, and I know that he was somebody who was loved by players when he was on the ice because he yep. loved to teach. He'd love to call penalties that weren't penalties. I mean, he'd call us, <laughs> he'd call splashing if he wanted to call splashing, you know, but he, but he made the game fun. And, and I know that there's guys that wear the stripes that make the game fun and people enjoy it a lot more that are playing. And I'm, I'm wondering for you guys, if you're involved in a game that's really close, it's going back and forth, you're skating end to end, there's hardly any penalties. Is there times where you guys just look out and smile and go, this is an amazing game. I'm glad to be part of it. Oh, more often than not. More often than not. I mean, it's, I, I still get that feeling, I don't know, 20 some odd years into a, a pro hockey career where it's just, this is awesome. Like, I'm, I'm out here. Like there's like even in college being lucky enough to do a couple of frozen fours, uh, just skating out in the ice and, and standing at center ice for the national anthem when it's jam full of fans and you just kind of look around and you get goosebumps. Just pinch me. I never thought I'd be 
I'd, I'd have this moment. I might have, I, I fell short of my ultimate goal of working in the National Hockey League, but uh, I don't think by any means that diminished the the feeling of working the the levels that I have, I've been fortunate enough to work. And it's just skate around and you, and you get in that mode of like, this is a great game. I love being out here. Now you start thinking, okay, don't do anything to screw it up. Don't get in the way. Don't, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Don't wake, don't wake the players up. They don't even know you're out here right now. Let them do their thing and get involved when you, when the game needs you to. So it's, uh, it's a great sport to be, a, to be a part of and uh, on any side. One of my favorite parts of your career and people can YouTube and find it was when you worked the AHL all-star game and they had you mic'd up for it. Oh, <laughs> that's not where I thought you were going. I thought there was another YouTube clip that you were going to go to. We can go to that later if you want to, but this is a good one. Uh, I mean, you got to really, same thing. You show your personality. I think, it, again, it humanized what you guys were doing. It's an honor to do games like that, though, right? I mean, when you get selected, oh. to, do, when you get selected to do an all-star game or to go deep into the playoffs, you know, explain how that works, though, because a lot of people don't understand. It's really a merit-based thing, right? For playoffs especially. You, we get we get uh, evaluated and, and supervised throughout the season, whether it's a supervisor in person or someone watching the game on video or on on AHL Live or whatever it is, or the war room in the NHL, and and and, and you get graded and you get rewarded in playoffs. I mean, we uh, the season ends and we're on pins and needles, hoping that we get that email saying that we made the playoff roster, and then you get your assignments, games one through three from the first round, and then. You work your third game, and you're sitting on pins and needles waiting for that next assignment, hoping that next assignment comes. And I was fortunate that uh, three times I was able to reach the, the, the third round, the conference finals in the American League, uh, which was awesome for me uh, to be, uh, I think, the only the only guys at the time that were getting that deep in the in the playoffs as referees were guys that were under contract with the NHL and, and Terry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to be to be one of those few guys that were selected to get that deep. That was a very proud moment that I, that I cherish, but with the, the all-star game selection, that's a, that's a selection kind of thanking, thanking the officials for their, their time put in. Uh, and it was just a, it was a great moment to be able to have my parents and my super pregnant wife and table yeah. <laughs> coming because we're on the road so much by ourselves on the year. We're traveling, we're missing, we don't have home games, so we're missing birthdays and anniversaries, and I missed proms and homecomings in high school because I wanted to go line a North American League game. Yeah. So it's, there's a lot of sacrifice that you, that you have to go through and that you put your family through. So to have a weekend like the All-Star Game where the league treats you first class, you're invited to all the, 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 the shindigs and the parties and the the galas and, and to have your family to share it with you for a brief moment of time was, that was the best part. Oh, side benefit too. What's your Marriott balance look like these days? Oh, it's empty now. No, <laughs> depleted. <Yeah. laughs> empty now. But back in the day, back in the day, it was, uh, that was the perks. We didn't make much money. I I think I made, I think the most I made in the American League one year was $32,000. Yeah. That's going to shock people. That's going to really shock people. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I mean, you talk about the sacrifices with the family. You're also sacrificing bank accounts. If you're chasing right. that, if you're chasing the dream, you're you're paying your dues, and during the season, you don't have time really for another job. If you're working three, four games a week plus travel, and uh, 
It takes a special situation to be able to work a second job. You know, like I, I, I mean, I know Terry is a good example. He has another job and that's part of the reason why you can continue to referee like this, but it, it's, there's not many like that that can find something that works that allows you to do this on the weekends. That allows you to travel and be able to take right. time off and, and, and make up for it in the summertime. I mean, it's, that's what we talked about having to be passionate to do this job. I mean, it's, it's more than just the, the traveling. You're not making any money. Until you get signed to the NHL, you're not making anything. Now, when you get signed to the NHL, you're you're doing very well and making a very, very comfortable living. And those guys are, are fortunate to, to be able to make what they make, but they've paid their dues. They've gone through the trenches. There's not many uh, There's not many guys that weren't in the same situation as everyone else back in the day working the, the juniors and minors. So it's – but that being said, I was able to – still be able to get married and buy a house and, and start a family making what I did. Uh, yeah. Fortunately, my wife has a very good job. So <laughs> that helped. Uh, yeah. But it's always no, good to marry back. well. <laughs> yes. I, yeah, I, I outkicked my coverage for sure. Yeah. You got a beautiful life, beautiful family. For anybody that's thinking about getting into officiating, what are your warnings? What's your advice? What would you tell them about it? You know, whether you're doing it on a professional level as a goal or just doing it at a youth level, what's important for people to know? I think the most, I think the important thing is you got to go into it for the right reasons. If you're going into it just to get a paycheck, uh, that's 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 a disservice to the game. If you're going into it to make it to the NHL, uh, it's <laughs> almost impossible. It's almost like hitting the lottery to make it to the NHL. The attitude you need to have to go into it is that you have to be passionate about hockey. You have to love the sport. And you have to go out there at the mindset every game to, to do what you can to make that game better, to go enhance that game. Uh, you might go out there, it might be at 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning and you're doing a mic game. And maybe you're hungover, maybe you don't want to be there. But you gotta, you got to remember, you got to keep, to somebody in that rink, that's the most important hockey game in their life. For those 40 kids playing and the parents in the stands, that's, that's their game seven in the Stanley Cup final every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. And if you go out there and you, you, you look like you don't want to be there and you don't give the work ethic that that game needs or you don't equal the work ethic the players are putting forth, then, then it's, it, you're disrespecting the game and, and you're making us all officials, uh, uh, you're giving us a black eye. So go out there and just take it, work every game like it's the most important game and then have fun with it. And if you... If you only reach Bantam Double A level, then then try and be the best Bantam Double A official that you can. Or if you get, if you're lucky to get into junior or minor pro, uh, uh, just try and be that best guy and try and make it make it your goal to get to the next level, the next level, the next level until you reach your peak. It's uh, it opens up a lot of doors no matter what level you get to. Is uh, friendships and I mean I wouldn't have. I owe everything I have to the game. So it's, uh, I'm getting emotional, Mike. (laughs) It's a career retrospective. I know the feeling. Think about everything we've gotten to do and everything that we've experienced along the way with this. You know, look at us. 20, like we said, 23, 24 years later, we shared the ice probably a thousand times in our lives, you know, and and maybe not that many. But I mean, that's a lot of time on the ice with somebody. And it's a lot of time that in your youth developing and learning how to be a human being and like it really is. It's all because of the game. Yeah, you know, it's a sport. Yeah, I mean, it's we were game. boys. 
we were yeah. kids. We were boys when we when we got into it. We were we were kids when we got into junior and, and even pro hockey, and we grew up with it. So it's uh, yeah, it's pretty neat. It's amazing stuff, man. Well, I I thank you for coming and, and telling your story because I know we could do a round two easily, and we could probably just do Terry stories for a solid hour. And a half. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, thank you for having me on, man. Thanks for listening to Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. Please make sure that you like, comment, leave a rating, subscribe, whether it's iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere that you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.